Disciples Church. It's good to see you today. Joyful to be here with you together to dive into God's holy word. Um, man, just the best part of the week to, to be in fellowship, to, to seek our good God. We will sing holy, holy uh, to the King of Kings. Man, it's such a joy to see you here. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians. You'll find it in the back of your Bibles. If you need one, we have some in the back of the room. Love for you to get familiar with God's holy word as we study it. Uh, Today we're in sermon three of our new journey through this great letter of Ephesians. Um, Excited to preach this morning on verse four. I want to uh, read to you verses one through five to give us a reminder of the introduction and a little bit of context um, uh, for where we've been. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. The Word of the Lord. Verse 4 begins with, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. When Paul says, even as, the beginning of verse 4, he's linking what he's about to say with what he just said. This is the fact that the redeemed in Christ, those who are saved and trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior, are the possessors of every spiritual blessing of God. This was the emphasis of last week's sermon. What we're about to see is that the eternal and abundant blessings of God have their source in the electing love of God to save an undeserving people. Listen to the beginning of the verse again. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. This is one of the highest and most holy points of clarity in all of Scripture regarding the doctrine of God's unconditional, individual election. That's what we're going to see and study here today, according to God's holy word. God's unconditional, individual election. The Word of Truth Catechism defines the work of God in election this way. Unconditional individual election means before creation existed, God chose which individual human beings would receive salvation from sin and death. This choice to redeem certain ones is not based on any so-called goodness, will, or work in them. Rather, it is based on the freedom and grace of God in Christ Jesus alone. Church, You must join me this morning in putting away any way that you have thought about or wanted to think about God's work in election 
that is contrary to Holy Scripture. We must climb into God's Word as authoritative in our lives and let Him instruct us with how He wills and works these things according to His holy and perfect plan. For He is good, worthy to be trusted and worshipped and praised. We must not add to Scripture by applying human reasoning or personal preference. For when we do this, we create in our hearts a false God that we want to worship instead of the one true God as He has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture, the only one who is worthy of our trust and praise. I want you to know that, like many of you, I didn't grow up with a right understanding of God's unconditional individual election. Uh, It was only after many years of faithful Bible study um, that God brought from the pages this bold and mighty truth of how He has ordained to save, to, to elect His chosen ones. Through and through, Scripture speaks of of this great truth of God. It was additionally beneficial for me to come to understand that the best long-standing historic confessions of the Christian faith stand in unity for the doctrine of God's unconditional individual election. That it is only rogue scholars and or modern era thinking or reasoning that has come to different conclusions on this topic. Church, it is your elders' high prayer and hope to stand in solidarity with God's holy word as he has revealed himself and with those who have endured throughout human history, um, those in the church who have held these long-standing biblical truths about who God is and how he works according to Scripture. I pray that God moves in your life today um, to understand Him better, how He works, how He wills to do these things. That you would submit yourself to Him in this way, and it would even stir you to praise for who He is and what He's done. Look closer with me at the verse. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Church, We, you and I, who have died to ourselves and truly and fully trusted our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Meaning you're not, you don't have history with religion or maybe you've gone through some spiritual seasons, but no, no. Jesus is the Lord of your life. Um, Your faith is in Him alone. For those who are born again, trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, you must understand you are of the chosen of God. He chose you. Think about the good news that that is to your soul. The the first big takeaway we must see here today is that God chooses. This is how God works. Now some people really struggle with this fact. Instead, they want to create an economy in their minds, in their hearts, through sinful and finite reasoning, to say that God can't choose, 
or orchestrate His creation. They say that He must be hands-off in the name of fairness or in the name of love or other man-made ideas of how things should work. But understand, that's not how the sovereign Lord works according to what He's revealed to us in Scripture. God does not spin up creation and turn it loose and say, we'll see how it turns out. That's not how He works. No, the the God of all creation had a plan from before creation, the Scriptures tell us. And He chooses the players, who they are, and how they will go. He is sovereign, truly, completely, over His creation. I contend this is good news when we understand it rightly. Consider with me the fact that God chooses, elects, in many of the ways He works throughout His handling of creation from the beginning. Go back to the first man, God ordained, God appointed, Adam to be the federal head of mankind. Mankind's representative was God's choice, Adam. We see that out of all the human race, out of all humans on earth, God chose Noah and his family to be the ones who would be spared from God's holy and righteous judgment on sin in the killing of every other human being on the earth in the flood. He chose which family would live. God did. Think about that. Out of all the people in the world, God chose Abraham and removed him from Ur, the Chaldeans, and made him the father of a great nation named Israel. That's why Israel is referred to as the chosen ones. Psalm 105, verse 43. The Lord, think about that, chose one people group. A pretty small, insignificant people group. The Israelites. Out of all the people groups, out of all the mighty nations of the earth, He picked one to will and to work through in the Old Covenant. And it wasn't because they were more attractive, more successful and proven. No, it was because of His own free predetermined will to choose them. To set His love upon them. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, For you are a people holy to God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the face of the earth. Now, I could go on and on and on giving you examples of how God chooses and elects. We see this not only throughout the Old Testament, but we see this throughout the New Testament. A couple key examples. God's sovereign choosing, God the Son, Jesus, in choosing 12 men that would spend significant, intimate time with Him to be trained and sent and studied. Those 12 disciples, handpicked, by Jesus out of everyone else. And He reminds them of this fact in John 15, 16. You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. 
In the New Testament, the, the saved who make up the body of Christ, the church, those who are redeemed by the blood of Jesus, are referred to as the chosen ones. We see this in Colossians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians, 2 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, Revelation. Many scriptures in the New Testament speak of the church, a community of those who are chosen by God for salvation, often referred to in those texts as the elect. In Paul's letters, To the Thessalonians, Paul reminds his readers that indeed he has chosen them and he's thankful for them because God chose them from the beginning for salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1.4 For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul is talking about suffering hardship in his life. And one of the reasons why he endures this hardship, he says in verse 10, 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So the fact that God chooses, that God elects, is a clear reality in how He works in His perfect and sovereign ways. This is a fact that we must embrace, church, and not confound or convolute. Now specifically, here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul is speaking of God's unconditional individual election on those whom God would save, bring salvation with His amazing grace. This is question 78 in our Word of Truth Catechism, which simply asks, who will be saved? According to Scripture, the answer is, only those who whom God has chosen for salvation, the elect, will be saved. Many people nowadays like to say that those who will be saved are those who choose God's gift of salvation. But God's word is clear and undivided in informing us that it is God who unconditionally chooses who He will save. We see this in many places, a few examples. Acts 13.48 When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Those who God appointed to eternal life were the ones who believed that day in the preaching of the word. Matthew chapter 22:14 simply says for many are called but few are chosen. What this is speaking of first is the calling is is the the speaking of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the testimony of the gospel on those who would hear it. That could be in a in a church setting like this, it could be on the street, it could be in a home where the gospel is testified. That is the call to repent and believe. 
There is no gospel testimony if lacking that call to repent and believe. That's the general call of the gospel. A call to repentance and belief in Jesus alone for salvation. So while that happens to many, many who will hear with their ears those words, God is clear that only few are chosen by Him to heed that call, to believe, to be saved. The elect of God chosen by Him to be saved. For many are called, but few are chosen. To help us better see how God does this, look with me at the screen and let me give you a a quick overview, according to Scripture, of how salvation in the elect plays out according to God's sovereign plan. First is unconditional individual election. That before creation, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit ordained, decided to save certain individuals. That was the plan set before time. We're going to delve into that more thoroughly this morning as we work through the verse. The gospel call is that preaching of the gospel, this testimony of the gospel that God ordains is a part of the vehicle of how He would save people. That we who know Him and have been entrusted with the gospel are to share it. And it is upon hearing the gospel that God opens ears and hearts to be saved, those whom He chooses. That testimony of the gospel, we are called to do. It's, it's why even though God knows who's going to be saved and who's not, we don't just sit back and go, okay, God's going to work that out. No, 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 church, He's called you and I to testify of the gospel because He uses the vehicle of the testimony of the gospel to hear those truths for those whom He will ordain to open their ears and unstop their eyes that they would repent and believe. Third is regeneration. That is that work of God that we see throughout Scripture where He takes a heart of stone turns it into a heart of flesh. He takes a person that is bound in sin. All they do is sin. All they want to sin. Nothing they do is to the glory of God. God's Word is clear. And He gives them a heart of flesh. He gives them, as Jesus speaks to Nicodemus, new birth. Eyes to see and ears to hear. No person trusts or believes or has faith in God who is still dead in their sin. They must be acted upon and given new birth so that now the gospel is good news to them. That is the sovereign work of God to save. And why at the end it's not up to us. That is also why our faith, which is the next step, our conversion, is a gift of God. That our belief in Him, our repentance from sin, is, is also a gift of God so that He would receive the credit and praise, not me. That we wouldn't stand before God one day in heaven and say, thank you for all that you did, all this, and I'm really glad I did my part. No, the Scriptures are clear that even our faith is a gift of God. That He receives all the praise. I will have nothing to boast in, the Scriptures say. Nothing I did. While it is me who believed, the, the gift of that belief is from God. That's conversion, repentance, and belief. New birth is what it's called. Uh, well, I'm sorry, that follows new birth, which is regeneration. Five is justification. Because... We stand in solidarity with Christ because Christ has taken on our sin, because we are given His righteousness. 
we who truly trust our lives to Jesus, who God ordained that to be, are justified, declared justified before the Holy God. Saved. No longer guilty. Pardoned. Free to know and worship Him. Now the result of that justification is adoption. That we are adopted into His family. Secure as a part of His eternal family. This is the focus of our text in verse 5 next week. hope you come back and journey with us to understand the adoption of God better next week. Sanctification is the ongoing journey of us growing and maturing in our faith. This is salvation being worked out as we understand the truths of God. We move from the immaturity of being a baby, a newborn baby in the faith, to maturity and repentance of sin, of, of, of seeing our sin and turning from it, and, and, and growing in our testimony of the Lord, and our, our making of disciples. The Word is clear. We will do that all the way until we die and are glorified. We will continually be sanctified. Death is going to be with the Lord. It's the finishing of this race that God has appointed for us. That He's predetermined even our days, the Scriptures say, before they begin. And that in that death, physical death, those who are alive in Christ will be glorified. will be given new resurrected bodies. We will enjoy the holy presence of the Lord forever. Apart from sin, apart from death, apart from fear and tears and worry, we will be in glory with God. Amen? That is salvation. The work of God from His plan before time unto glory. Eternal reigning and feasting with our good God. Now let's dive into the meat of the matter. First, we must understand that God's choice or election is unconditional. Meaning it's not based on any conditions. God chooses which individuals will be saved, not based on anything we do, but based on Him alone. That's a huge important clarity according to Scripture. Second, we must see that God's choice or election of who would be saved is for the individual. It's not for people, groups, nations, or families. Every individual has a name written in the book of life or not. To better understand these important details of God's work and election, I want you to turn with me to uh, the New Testament book of Romans. Look with me at chapter 9. It is here that Paul brings thorough clarity for the good news of the doctrine of God's unconditional individual election. In chapter 8, Paul speaks of the victory and the power and the security the elect have in Jesus Christ. And as Paul is writing and interacting with those around him at the time he wrote this letter to the Romans, there were many who were upset that this new life with Christ, this salvation and the victories claimed to be with it, were not for others who might have been Jews or other people in their family, that they wanted to also have that. And they said, well, aren't we part of the, the covenant people of God? So why is that salvation not also for us? And so there's this contention of basically saying, why doesn't God bring this salvation for all of us, or at least for these people? And so Paul is going to answer these concerns and contentions as he moves into chapter 9. I want you to realize as he's doing this, and as we see this written, this is the same sinful, selfish thinking 
that we contend with today, where man wants to challenge the economy of God and say, God, you should do this differently. I know better. And so what's beautiful is that we don't have to guess at this. God ordained that Paul would give this to us so clearly. As I read you what Paul's answer is to these concerns, I pray you would see with clarity these things, and it's a blessing for you. Uh, Maybe it's your own struggle or the struggle of someone you know. Um, we, We don't have to go far to understand that God answers these challenges um, that are proposed about how He wills and works. Thank you, Lord, for Holy Scripture. Let's look at Romans 9, verse 1 through 5 first. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul is feeling the weight of these matters and the contention that people are having against God's sovereign work and election and who's saved through Christ and who's not. And, he's, and so he's, he's feeling that in his flesh. He, he goes on in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Note that Paul's wrestling here, um, ordained by God to be written, that the wrestling's not God's, it's Paul's, and, 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 and there's a fleshly, horizontal, I wish those I love could have this too. That's my wrestling um, for my Israelite brothers, my Jewish brothers and sisters. But he goes on to say that even though he's wrestling with that and would even be willing to consider exchanging that, he's, 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 he's in this kind of turmoil. He goes on to say, but this clarity that you need to hear is the way God works and therefore we must submit ourselves to it so see Paul's resolve to teach the truth of how God works in election in what is coming we too should joyfully submit to these things and worship God for these things again the problem he's wrestling with here in Romans 9 is stated in verse 3 many of the Jewish kinsmen who are accursed cut off from Christ they do not believe in Jesus' Savior, um, even though they're a part of the Old Covenant people, the Jewish people. Um, Paul's emphasis in his teaching here is that election is for the individual and not for people groups. And second, that it is without condition that God elects. These are these two big truths that are lifted here in, in chapter 9. Look, continue with me. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the Word of God has failed. Even though there's contention among you, even though you're wrestling with the reality of how God does this, God's Word has not failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, Paul has two Israels in view here. Ethnic Israel is the first he refers to. The chosen nation of God for God's purposes in the Old Covenant. 
And then Paul is speaking of true Israel, that is God's elect. True Israel is made up of individuals of every tribe, tongue, and nation, including some who were a part of ethnic Israel. This is what he means. For not all who are descended from Israel, ethnic Israel, belong to true Israel, the elect. This is the clarity Paul's bringing. His next words are going to clarify that Paul is speaking about individuals, not people groups. Abraham, Isaac, Sarah, Rebecca, Jacob, Esau, individuals. Look at me at verse 7 and 8. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there's this promise that belonged to Abraham that pointed to Christ and salvation. But what he's saying is not all have that, that election in their lives, just because they're part of his offspring, the ethnic offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh, those born just in the family heritage, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The promise of God, set in motion before time, that He would save a people through the work of Jesus Christ, the Savior, Messiah. The children of the promise are the individual elect of God. Chosen before time. From within the people of Israel, some would be of His elect and have saving faith in Jesus, but many would not. They, they would have enjoyed the old covenant blessings upon them and promises to God for, to fulfill that, but not the new covenant fulfilled in Christ. Whether God chooses to save an individual or not, hear me clearly, is not based on who his or her family is. It is solely based on God's election individually in that person's life. That's Paul's emphasis on individual election. Now let's hear his emphasis on unconditional election, that it's without conditions. He continues, verse 9, For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not based of works, but because of Him who calls. Now let me slow down and really help us tear that apart, because here it is. The definition for unconditional election, how God does this, is found right here, most clearly in verse 11. God chose, chooses His elect not based on what they do, good or bad, These two boys in the womb aren't even born yet. And he's speaking of his election of them even before that, that before any good or bad has happened. It's not because of their works and not because of his foreseeing their good or bad, but instead because of the purpose of God's election. Because it is his will to do this. That's it. That's the reason for election. It's not conditional. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. God is the one. I exhort you this morning, hear the weight of that sentence, the clarity it brings. 
when God tells us why He does something, as eternally fundamental, as unconditional individual election of who He will save, He's giving us information about the nature of the ultimate reality. Namely, God's reality that is more fundamental and important than any other human knowledge that we might gather along the way. This is God, author of all things, revealing how He works. We should tune in and see this as truth greater than any other truth or knowledge we could have from any other experience or something we'd read. That's the point. Church, the work of God in election is something He is to be praised for. It is beautiful. It's a praiseworthy work of God. It should not be relegated to the corner any longer. He wants His purpose of election to continue to be seen and known that it's part of how we worship Him. Here's the problem. Many in the modern church have gone, man, I, I don't really get or understand or maybe agree with this idea that God would choose before someone's born if they're going to be saved or not. Because I don't agree with that, let's just not talk about it. Let's put it back here, so, in, in the corner. Oh, oh, oh I, I know that word elect is all throughout Scripture. I know God's Word speaks it, but we just, we just don't go there, is how many people treat this topic. And sadly, even many preachers. You look on many modern-day preachers' podcasts, and you will see that many of them avoid, like the plague, the preaching of Romans 9. And these matters. Why? Because in their humanistic thinking they're thinking well that topic's maybe too divisive so we're just going to avoid it i want more people to keep coming to my church but here's the thing it is god's work that changes lives his word so my job is to preach his word and not be wiser in my own eyes about what i should or shouldn't do for your sake it's god's word that's going to do the work that he intends to do it's my job to preach it faithfully that we would climb into these doctrines instead of relegating to the corner and say, God, your word speaks this. May I understand it and praise you for it. That's my, my hope and my praise for us. God's work in election is to continue and to be on display. Not something we, we don't talk about, something we talk about. And we praise Him for it. It's good and right because God says it is. Not because we say it is. So I ask again, why, God, do you do this great work of unconditional election? His answer, ordained to be written through Paul, here in Romans 9, is this. In order that my purposes of election might continue, not because of works, but because of me who calls. That's his answer. God chose Jacob over Esau, not because of works. God did not choose Jacob because of works he had already done, nor did he choose him because of works he would do later. Paul is ruling out a common argument that some people will try to climb into to say that God, God's election is only based on his foreknowledge of which people will choose him or not. So it's like somehow God's off the hook because all he's doing is looking through the halls of time. He sees who's going to choose him and then he's declaring, oh, those are my elect. Do you see how at the end of the day, who's in the driver's seat in that situation? The person, not God. God's not sovereign in that. Church, this is not the way the Scriptures speak of who God is. 
We must repent of, of any part of us that wants to create a different economy about these things, a different way of, of, of twisting and manipulating words, but to hear Scripture and let it wash over us and define and send us forth. God's election is not based on our deeds in any way. Not deeds already done, not deeds that we will do. God's election is not dependent or bound to us in any way. It is His right as God. And it is for His glory that He does election. The way He does it. And this is Paul's emphasis in the coming verses. Look with me in verse 12. She, she was told the older will serve the younger. So, this revealed will of God is revealed when, when, when the babies are still in the womb. And according to Paul, in Ephesians 1.4 and other places, God's election for Jacob was decided not when they were in the womb, but before time began. That Esau would go on to sell his birthright, putting himself under his younger brother, Jacob. That's unheard of in that culture. That the older would serve the younger. But God declares it. Th- this will be so. Look at verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now for many people, they get really hung up on these words. You mean my, my loving God, God who is love. God, God can't hate anyone. And I contest that when we think that way, It is only because we have a small view of the depth of our depravity before a holy God. Uh, We we have a man-made diminishing view of our sin before a holy God. We need to see sin rightly and the atrocity of it, the grossness of it before a holy God. So much so, that we see God's holiness rightly. We see our sin before Him rightly. It's not the words Esau, I hated, that would trip us up. When we see those things rightly, it's the words Jacob, I loved, that should trip us up. That, that the perfect holy God would put His love on a wicked sinner like Jacob. When I see His holiness in my sin rightly, Esau, I hated you. Go, okay, I get that. But Jacob, I loved. Really? This is true? That the Holy God could put his love on someone like Jacob? That's what should mess us up when we read this verse, not the other way around. But the problem is, many times we struggle. We have a low view of God, a high view of self, and so we go, well, God should just love everyone. We don't see sin rightly, we don't see his holiness rightly. Look at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? This is the argument of the flesh. An argument many have made, we've made, and maybe throughout your journey you've made different times. Paul's addressing it here in Romans. We're still addressing it with many. And maybe you're doing really big business with this today where that's what you've been thinking. If God chooses who He's going to save before anything happens, how is there justice in that? Is God unjust in His sovereign, unconditional, individual election of some and not others? 
Paul's answer is quick and concise. He says, by no means. By no means is God unjust in this. Hear with great clarity what Paul's saying. If you are here today, and you're saying the doctrine of election screams out in your heart and mind injustice of God, it makes him somehow to look bad, unloving, not worth following. Paul's words, hear Paul's words clearly. By no means is there injustice of God in this. That's the Word of God doing its work on even us right here, right now. He goes on to clarify, For he says to Moses, verse 15 and 16, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It's not dependent on us who gets mercy. It's dependent on God who gives mercy. God's selection of whom He pours out justice to and whom He gives mercy to is His choice, not ours. The receiving of mercy is not based on our will or our effort, our exertion. It's based on His will and Jesus' work in our place. God be praised for salvation. Romans 9.17 continues, For the Scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God, in the Old Testament, referenced here by Paul, raised up Pharaoh. Realize who Pharaoh is. Pharaoh declares himself to be God. To be the God of the day. To be worshipped. The whole economy of Pharaoh is against God's holiness. It is wicked through and through. God says in His Word that He raised Pharaoh up for His purposes. What were those purposes? To be really concise and get right to it. In the releasing of the imprisoned Israelites from Pharaoh and the Egyptians, the most dominant people in all the earth in that day, the unheard of, amazing work of God to release and remove the Israelites from their grasp was for generations the most talked about event in human history. It was on the lips and the minds and the stories of people and generations and still is today. The work of the God of Israel in that moment. God had a plan in raising up Pharaoh. Even in his hardening, even in his disobedience, God is at work in that sovereignly. What is God's priority in doing these things? The demonstration of His power and the proclamation of His name in all the earth. He will be praised and worshipped. Look at verse 18, Romans 9.18. So then He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whoever He wills. God chooses. Look at verse 19. You will say then to me, why does He still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is the one who wills, then how, how is sinful man still guilty? Right? That's a fair question. You might be thinking it already. If that's the case, then how does he still find fault? This is the argument we want to make. We want to rail up against God. This is the argument that, hey, we're all just robots then. And, and, and can I just point out, I myself back in the day, maybe you relate, 
when we're arguing those points and we're kind of shaking our fist at God, surely this isn't how you work. I want to believe something different. Realize, as we read the text, we're the ones who align with the questions, the opposition. And if we stay there, then we remain in opposition to God's revealed word in the answers. May we not stay there. May we repent of that position, climb into God's truth as long as it takes us to receive them, obey them, and honor Him as He's revealed Himself. That's the goal. What is the answer? Why does He still find fault? Who can resist His will? Paul says in verse 20, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? In other words, by what authority does the created tell the creator what should be done with creation? He's pointing out the absolute arrogance of sinful man to say, even though God reveals that this is how he works, instead of praising him and trusting him, I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to say that maybe this should have been done a different way. Paul says, who are you? To tell the Creator what He should do with His creation. Paul makes this point as he specifically describes God's sovereignty in unconditional individual election. Look at verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Romans 9, 22-23. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory? God's purpose in these things, in His election for some and not all, is to put on display the beautiful, righteous, perfect attribute of God's wrath and justice, power and love and mercy and grace, all perfectly attributes of God. You know, Christian, that God is to be praised for His wrath as much as He's praised for His love. That one is not a greater attribute than the other. They perfectly define the perfect God and how He works. So when he wants to put those things on display and be praised for them, that is his good and perfect right as God to do with his creation what he wills for the glory of his name. That's Paul's point. May we heed it, understand it, climb into it, repent of any attitude that fights against it. I pray this is helpful for you to see and savor the good will and work of God in his unconditional individual election. Now, back to... Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Church, do you see the beauty and the wonder and the good news of the fact that we who belong to Jesus, who are saved by God's grace, who have every spiritual blessing of God, were given all of this not by our choice, nor by some cosmic happenstance, but by the perfect, unconditional, individual election of God. 
God chose you. Oh, I want you to climb in and see the beauty and the wonder of this reality. He didn't have to. And you left alone in your sin would have never chosen Him. He chose you. He chose to save you. This is truly good news to our soul when we climb into this marvelous truth. So when you are feeling down, brother or sister in Christ, about your circumstances, when you are going through a really tough season, when you are all about throwing a big pity party, when you're feeling left out, know, remember, you are chosen by God. You belong to Jesus. I mean, that should just completely overwhelm us. Way bigger than being invited by the president or being given the biggest stage in the world. The God of all creation chose you in Christ to be His forever when you absolutely did not deserve it one bit. God chose you. It would, it would wreck us. It would send us. It would compel us. What greater insight can you have into how you are loved? Into how important you are, brother, sister, and Christ, and the fact that God has chosen you? May we not throw that aside and and build up with so much more grandeur what it means these other situations in our temporary life to realize this to see the potency of this I really want you to climb in with me for a moment into the when when he chose you even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world before there was anything else before there was any time or matter when there was only God Father, Son, Holy Spirit He chose us individually. All of of creation, all of life, the world, the universe as we know it is set around the framework of a plan made in eternity past by God to redeem a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that would worship Him and know Him forever. It is an eternity past before God created anything, before time began. The Holy Spirit, Father and Son, put into motion a plan of redemption that would be accomplished through the perfect work of Jesus, God the Son, on our behalf. There are so many we could look at that show this, but a few quickly. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Ephesians 1.4 Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Charles Hodge speaks of it this way. From eternity, the whole scheme of redemption, with all of its details and all of its results, laid matured in the divine mind. Think about that. This is the covenant of redemption. 
covenant made between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit before anything was created, before the clock of creation is spun up, before anything is set in motion, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit planned for the beloved Son to take on flesh, die in the place of a chosen worldwide people so that they would be blessed with every spiritual blessing and be adopted as sons through the work of Christ. In Revelation 13 and 17, it speaks of a heavenly book referred to as the book of life in which God wrote the names of the elect before time began. And those whose names are not written in the book of life will face His good and right judgment for their sin. I say this too because if you are of the chosen ones of God, the elect, your name was unchangeably written in Christ's book of salvation before the foundation of the world. See His perfect, sovereign, mighty, eternal work in that. And let it move you to bold testimony, high praise of who God is. Christian, this is an awesome and comforting truth. Look again with me at verse 4 and see what must be for our election to be a reality, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Paul emphasizes time and time again in this letter and elsewhere, the election of God is made possible in Him. In who? In Christ. In Christ alone. It is Jesus' work on our behalf that makes we who were dead in sin, to be holy before the holy God, and therefore saved and sanctified. Without Him, we have no hope. This is the great exchange. The perfect record of Christ would be exchanged with each of the elect for our sinful, guilty, stained, wrath-deserving record. This is the gospel of our Lord. God gives us Jesus' perfection. We're given His righteousness. In this, we the elect are made holy in God's sight. Our sin is put on Christ. He pays for all of our deserved wrath. The beauty of the gospel. So when now the holy God looks upon each of the saved and, the, and, the, and those in Christ, He sees Christ's perfection and holiness this is Paul's emphasis here in, in verse 4. Even as He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Uh, this is the work of Christ to have for Himself a redeemed, blood-bought bride. Language we'll see later in our study of Ephesians chapter 5. It will be a while before we get there. Chapter 5, verse 26 and 27, Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It is only because of Christ's sanctifying work that we're made holy, thereby justified by God, and received into His eternal glory. It is worth noting again the great clarity given regarding God's unconditional individual election. Hear this really carefully. If certain people are chosen by God to be made holy, then they are not chosen by God because they are holy. I'll say it again. If certain people are chosen by God to be made holy, then they are not chosen by God because they are holy. His choice, 
His sovereign work. God chooses, not because of any condition we perform, but if anything, in spite of our condition, rotten through and through in sin. Again, I say praise God for His amazing grace, His sovereign will to save any of us, right? And so maybe you're wondering this morning, am I part of God's elect? If, let me say it this way, you are if you have confessed your sin, trusted your life to Jesus as Lord and Savior, remain faithful to Him. That's the evidence of His work on you as His elect, on display. The point is, God only gives true saving faith to His elect. If you or a loved one has not confessed your sin and died to yourself to trust your life to Jesus and live for Him in His glory and, in, and continue in that until death and glory, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are not part of God's elect. It just means the evidence of saving faith whom God only gives to His elect, is not yet upon you. And we don't know. We don't know who is of God's elect and who's not. We don't know when God will choose to give saving faith to His elect. So let's not pretend to know or assume to try to wrangle God into what we want. Consider that. Trying to convince, oh, this loved one who has not confessed faith in you, Lord, just please make them part of your elect. Do you realize that's just you not understanding? He already decided. (laughs) Okay? So he's not changing that. Now, we can pray for them, and we should. Lord, it's my prayer that this person would have saving faith, that they are part of your elect, that I would be bold in my testimony of them and not shy away from speaking these bold truths in their lives. That's the way I love them the best. Church, let us walk by faith and trust in His perfect and holy eternal plan. For those of you not yet saved, I encourage you, keep coming. Keep reading His Word. Keep asking questions. For those of you who have loved ones who are not yet saved, keep praying for them. Keep testifying the Gospel to them. Keep trusting God with them. His plan for their life and eternity is better than yours. Do you realize that? Some of you hold God in contempt too much. Like somehow you're shaking a dummy. Hey God, you're surely going to do this thing that I'm telling you should do, right? No, no, His plan is better than yours. Do you trust Him? Christian, are you walking by faith? Or is God your means to another end? Can I just say, your loved ones that you're passionately praying for, can I just remind you, they don't belong to you. They belong to Him. He's the potter, they are the clay. He's entrusted them to be a part of the economy of your life, but they don't belong to you. Pray for them. Testify to them. Walk in truth and love. Don't diminish that. It's the thing they need the most. Whether they know it or not, even when they say, stop giving me that, keep giving it to them. It's the thing they need the most. You're not loving them to give them what they want. They're damned in their sin apart from Christ. Love them enough to give them truth in love. Pray for them. Don't stop praying for them until they're dead and gone. To close, I want us to see these last two words in the modern translator, including them in verse 4. And we'll delve into them more next week. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
in love. In love. Why is the doctrine of God's unconditional individual election good news? Because it's done in the love of God. Consider the fact that God's love has always been on the elect. His very electing is done in His love for us. Christian, when you wonder, am I loved by God? Know that He has always loved you. He loved you before you were born. His love for you is shown in His choosing you without any conditions on Him or anything performed by you. It is truly unconditional love. Disciples, family, do you know that in your core? That truth of God's love for you should help be a power to expel all the things trying to climb into your head and heart that make you feel diminished or unloved or unimportant. You're loved by God. (laughs) See it. Savor it. Is this a great comfort for you? I pray it is. It should be. The New Testament authors go out of their way to point out that election is a great comfort for believers. Paul does this in the end of Romans 8 when he says, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to a purpose. And then in verse 29, he's, he explains, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. That that... He's going to work everything for your good and His glory is based in the truth of your election. Paul tells the Christians in Thessalonica, we give thanks to God always for you, for we know, brethren, beloved by God, that He has chosen you. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 4. Made even clearer in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved. Church, see His love for you and His election for you. See how this stirs in us high praise and bold testimony of Christ. Church, we testify boldly as we leave this morning of the gospel of our Lord, not because we know who is part of God's elect and who isn't, but because we know that God's elect are out there and that every one of them will be saved. Amen? So we testify the gospel to all He puts in our path for that very means of the very reason why He gives us more days here to do that. This is why we testify day and night. This is why we call people to repentance and belief in Jesus alone here in Bakersfield and to the ends of the earth. Because God will have for Himself a people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. For all of you who can hear my voice this morning and have heard this exposition of Ephesians 1-4, may you repent and believe in Jesus alone for salvation and be saved and worship God alone for your salvation and His unconditional individual election of you to be forever His. Amen? Father, we thank You for this time together. Enjoy. We, we hear the teaching of Your Word. We receive it as good and from You. 
I pray for any sinful contention or desire to push back, to have any kind of arrogant proclamation to say, even though these things are clearly taught, I choose to believe something different. Lord, I pray we would put that away. I pray that we would submit ourselves in faith to you. Climb, begin to ask questions, grow, mature in these truths. So they are good news to our soul. They do give us great perseverance in the midst of a broken world and the strife and suffering we face. That we boldly testify the gospel of the Lord Jesus, knowing that you will save all that you have set out to save. Every one of them. For your batting average is perfect. Everyone whom you will save will be saved. And we praise you for this truth. We praise you for your holy work in this way. And we worship you now and as we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.